Today we're going to start uh, in a sense moral theology proper in that we are now actually looking properly in the catechism at the beginning of the portrayal of the moral life. So there are two things we're going to aim to cover this morning. One is um, the image of God. And the other is beatitude. And I'm going to note how these are connected and how the catechism portrays. So where was I? Um, Exodus and Redditus. So we come from God and we're made to return to him, um, made in his image, called to find fulfillment and beatitude in him. And we do that uniquely in material creation in freedom. We're the only bit of his material creation that is free. Now, I'm going to skip over the next two pages and come back to those later in the lecture because um, the more important point I want us to think about um, is the question of happiness and beatitude. So page five, if you can turn to page five of the notes. So on this page, I am summarizing in part what you'd have read in the Catechism, but a bit of philosophical, theological analysis drawing on St. Augustine and St. Thomas. So this page is called Happiness and the Final End of Human Action. So say, all things act for a purpose. A plant acts purposefully, but by instincts. A plant doesn't choose to grow, but it does grow to the sun, it's aiming somewhere, it has a built-in purpose. Humans act consciously, but nonetheless they act for a purpose. Humans move themselves according to their purpose. We have non-conscious actions that might be, as St. Thomas puts it, actions of a man, but not properly human acts, since they're not proper to man as man. So I trip up, that is an act of a man, but if I didn't choose it, it's not a rational act. It's not St. Thomas would, what he'd call a human act. Okay, moving on to what's really important. All human activity acts for the sake of a final end. I know there's a modern secular view that there is no end of human activity, only many different short-term goals. Yes, so, you know, there's lots of people who live a very eclectic life. They think, well, today I'm going to do this, tomorrow I'm going to do that. This year I'm going to aim to... And they think there's no deeper purpose in anything. Just they self-determine themselves and whatever they're going to do. Now, Augustine says, that's nonsense. Augustine says, and I'm here I'm quoting from his Confessions, he says, all men desire joy. All desire a blessed life. All men agree in desiring the last end, which is happiness. And the Latin he's using there is beatitude. Let me unpack this. All humans seek happiness, but humans disagree as to where they think they'll find happiness. Now, big claim here. No one seeks to be unhappy. Even those who perversely seek misery 
do so because they seek some happiness in it. Now let me pause there. The moody teenager. The moody teenager refuses to be happy. I'm going to be moody today. Uh, yeah, and the seminarians can sometimes relate to this, yes. Uh, the moody teenager, even while saying, I refuse to be happy, I refuse to enjoy your fun, actually is just enjoying the moodiness. Yeah, there's a, a kind of pleasure being taken, a joy being taken in that refusal to be happy, which actually means it's a seeking to be happy, even while in moodiness refusing to partake of happiness. So whatever you do in any activity, you're doing it thinking, it's just going to be a bit better if I do this. I'm going to sit down because it'll just, I'll be a bit happier if I sit down. Some thing I'm going to get, grab, take, if I do that, a glimpse, a grasping of joy. Why do I seek all these things I seek in life? I just think it's going to be a bit better, happier if I have them. I take a nap because I think I'll be happier having had a nap. I work out because I think I'll be happier for having worked out. Everything I'm pursuing, I'm pursuing it thinking on the other side is a greater participation in happiness. And even when people disagree as to what they think happiness is, that is just the basic structure of human existence. So technically, we seek things the philosophers call goods, individual things that are good, we grasp after them thinking the possession of that good will give me some partaking of happiness. With me so far? This accords with your own experience? Yes. We're going to note next lecture how even when we sin, we're doing the same thing. I stuff myself with six donuts because I somehow think that's going to be happy. Even while I'm doing it, there's another bit of me telling me this isn't going to work out. Um, I somehow, the donut looks attractive. The donut is attractive. The donut is telling me, eat me and you will be happy. And it tells me that the first time, and the second, and the... Th and it's only because it somehow looks attractive, has the appearance of good, that I'm yearning for it. Okay, anyway, we're going to look more at how that goes wrong in sin next lecture. Back to my notes here. So halfway down the page, the little section there I've called The Good. So St. Thomas phrases it, Whatever man desires, he desires it under the aspect of good. So technically, the formal end of every act of the will is goodness. The material end of every specific act is a good, a specific thing. 
Now, quoting Augustine, to achieve happiness, humans pursue goods. We only love that which is fair, beautiful, apt. You can't love, you can't desire, you can't move towards something unless it is, in some sense, good. There is something within it that is attractive, that is good. That is the structure of being, and thus it calls to me. And different things call to me. To goods, there are many different things. There's an apple and an orange. But then there's also uh, a sausage. You know, utterly different things. They all have the, some appearance, some desirability. And I want them because they tell me somehow, have me and you'll be happy. So in what does happiness consist? Humans seek goods thinking that the possession of them will bring happiness. But happiness does not consist in, and here I'm following a list that is in Aristotle and is in St. Thomas. Um, happiness does not consist in wealth, honors, fame, glory, power, pleasure, neither in any created good, nor any bodily good, nor even any good of the soul. None of these are sufficient to satisfy as the end. They are merely means to the end. So Thomas concludes, the comprehensive good, the only good that can satisfy, must be a comprehensive good encompassing all other goods. Thus human happiness consists in God alone. So that yearning for the donut, even without me realizing it, is a yearning for God. A yearn for the donut seeking fulfillment, seeking happiness. But none of the goods of this world are enough for a spiritual being like myself. I'm made for something more. So people dedicate their lives to the pursuit of money and it never quite makes, does it for them. Dedicate themselves to a bigger house, a bigger car, a better job. None of those things quite does it because they're all finite goods and you're made for something more. Only the comprehensive good, God alone, can satisfy the yearning within you. You're doing the Nicomachean Ethics at the, right now? Not all of you? You've already done it. Okay. Um, so in that, you'll unpack this more slowly. Um, comments so far? It, Michael, yeah. So how are created goods used as a means to Because what I want is happiness. I don't really want wealth per se. 
Yeah. And I want wealth because I think if I have more money, then I'll be happy. Oh. But then you, you spend that on something and then you keep going. Aristotle makes the distinction. He says, no one wants to be happy for some other end. Happiness is always the kind of last point in the seeking. I want the money thinking I'll then be happy. I want the wife thinking I'll then be happy. I want the wife and two kids and thinking I'll then be happy. I want the wife, two kids, the car, the house, then I'll be happy. All these things, I think, getting that next thing and then I'll be happy. But happiness itself is the final end. There's nothing beyond happiness that you're seeking. Now God, the perfect good, the ultimate good, the comprehensive good, includes everything, grasping him, I have happiness. Happiness, beatitude, is part of God himself. So in philosophy, have you done the simplicity of God? So, there's this phrase the philosophers have that God is simple. He doesn't have parts. He doesn't have an arm and a leg. He doesn't have bits to him. In God, all those perfections of him, truth, beauty, goodness, happiness, they're not bits of him. They are him, or he is them. So that in seeking beatitude, I am seeking God, because those aren't two separate things in him that is part of that one perfection that is God. And as I set out striving, seeking happiness, I don't set out knowing that that's God, or I'm probably, you know, most humans don't know they're seeking God when they're seeking happiness. But then when we realize actually what is true happiness, that it is the possession of God, we realize all this is together. So the Beatitudes, this is page six. Now we're shifting focus slightly to the Gospels. Um, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, when the Lord Jesus gives his moral discourse, Matthew 5 onwards, he describes there on the Sermon on the Mount how to live, the good life. Where does he start it? He starts it meeting this desire for happiness, this desire for blessedness, by describing what true blessedness, what true happiness is. And how does he describe it? What he says actually is describing himself. In particular, is describing himself on the cross. So let me go through this page here, the Beatitudes. The Lord chose to start his teaching on the moral life, the Sermon on the Mount, with the Beatitudes. 
The Catechism reiterates an ancient interpretation of the Beatitudes, namely, the Beatitudes depict the countenance of God, of Jesus Christ. So sadly, this understanding rarely features in parish homilies, but all of the last three popes refer to it. So, um, Adam, could you read the first block there from Pope Benedict's? In truth, the blessed poor excellence is only Jesus. He is, in fact, the true poor in spirit, the one afflicted, the meek one, the one hungering and thirsting for justice, the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemaker. He is the one persecuted for the sake of justice. The Beatitudes show us the spiritual features of Jesus and thus express his mystery, the mystery of his death and resurrection, of his passion and of the joy of his resurrection. This mystery, which is the mystery of true blessedness, invites us to follow Jesus and tell us walk us to walk Michael, can you read the next quote? This is John Paul II. The Beatitudes are invitations to discipleship, to communion of life with Christ, since they are our sort of self-portrait of Christ. And then Eric. In these words is all the novelty brought by Christ, and the whole novelty of Christ is in these words. In fact, the Beatitudes are Jesus' portrait, his way of life. There are the way of true happiness, which we also can live with the grace that Jesus gives us. Okay, so have you heard this description of the Beatitudes before? As being Jesus describing himself. Um, I remember the first time I heard this, it just utterly changed how I read the Beatitudes. It finally made sense, the Beatitudes, because the Beatitudes are a bit weird. The, the poor in spirit, um, the, those who mourn, the meek, um, they get it pretty tough. And there's one interpretation that says, well, all these things will be reversed in heaven, where there is true blessedness in completion. That is true. But the deepest meaning of this text is saying, this is me. I am the one there on the cross who is afflicted, who is poor in spirit, who is yearning for righteousness. Blessedness is sharing in me. So at the bottom of the page there I say, this is a text about the Lord Jesus. Blessedness means being united to him. Thus quoting the Catechism, the goal of the virtuous life is to become like God. So I was outlining on that previous page how this quest for happiness that the philosophers analyze, this quest for blessedness, the Lord Jesus meets that in his portrayal of the moral life in describing himself. How are you to live? Live like me on the cross. This is true blessedness. Share in this, and you share in the blessedness you will have in fullness in heaven, but you're sharing in it even now on earth. Okay, moving aside from interpreting the text of the Beatitudes, 
let's come back to the question of the desire for happiness. So page seven here. This page is titled The Desire for Happiness. See, the Catechism then notes, after having said what we've looked at already, the Beatitudes respond to the natural desire for happiness. This desire is of divine origin. God has placed it in the human heart in order to draw man to the one who alone can fulfill it. Now I then ask a big question. So this natural desire for happiness, is it selfish to desire happiness? Yeah, and we all know there is a way of seeking happiness that can be selfish. But here the catechism, building on what Aristotle and the philosophers say, makes this the very structure of good ethical behavior to seek happiness. Selfish if it's according to our nature. Like, so, is it, could you make the argument that it's like selfishness is according to our nature? I guess if you looked at it the wrong way. Only our fallen nature. Yeah. So Adam and Eve, in their quest for being, would have been made for God, made for beatitude. Um, So it's concupiscence when that desire goes wrong that it's not authentic and that then somehow a quest for happiness is selfish, but it's not real happiness you're seeking. Let me make some distinctions on this page here, okay, and then we'll come back to that question. Is it selfish to desire happiness? I say many critiques of virtue theory, as it's called, dismiss its quest for fulfillment and happiness as selfish. Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, is probably the most famous here. He pitted morality against the question of happiness. He said, happiness is not the end of a being with reason. Um, Brother Adam, can you read that little quote from him? If an unfortunate man wishes for death and yet preserves his life without loving it, not from inclination or fear, but from duty, then his maxim indeed has a moral content. So here Immanuel Kant is describing the perfect image of a moral person. He wants to die, but he knows it's wrong to kill himself, therefore he lives. Um, it's a very miserable portrayal of the moral life. That's what he says. Now, I... Um, the Dominicans here, uh, Father Basso, we follow a renewal of moral theology looking to St. Thomas, but particularly through the lens of a um, recently deceased theologian surveying cares that I, I footnote here. He makes his response this way. He says, happiness and goodness are not rivals. He says, in the past, the good past, the good and happiness, Latin beatitude, formed a single concept expressed by a single word, good, bonum in Latin. Thus the pursuit of true happiness is the pursuit of goodness. And then I'm going to outline here, drawing back what I mapped out at the beginning, the distinction between pleasure, pain, joy, and sorrow. 
So pleasure, delectatio, is physical, whereas joy is spiritual. Men and animals experience delectatio, physical pleasure. Angels and humans overlap in experiencing spiritual joy. Physical pleasure, delectatio, is caused by contact with a sensible physical good. Whereas joy is a delight of the soul caused by interior apprehension distinct from bodily delight but not necessarily unrelated. Physical pleasure, delectatio, only lasts as long as physical contact remains with the sensible good causing the delectation. Whereas spiritual joy perdures even after its immediate cause passes. Then I note pleasure cannot be shared without being diminished. If you share your cookie with someone, you get less cookie and experience less physical pleasure. Whereas spiritual joy in contrast can be shared. In fact, when it's shared, it increases. Sharing the physical cookie increases our spiritual joy. Thus, I summarize, to seek authentic spiritual pleasure is a non-selfish quest. Are you with me? Yeah? So when, when you use the cookie, you experience uh, physical pleasure. But the joy is not much on the cookie, but on your knowledge that even somehow this is geared towards showing happiness with God, not necessarily on the cookie. Right. Right. It's related, but like the cookie is not causing you joy. Right. So the cookie its physical contact causes me physical pleasure but because I'm engaging with the cookie in a rational spiritual way it becomes a means an occasion of me experiencing joy because in contemplating the wonder of the cookie I am contemplating a bit of God's creation a bit of the wonder of God, a bit of the goodness of God. And I'm in gratitude and love appreciating the fact that he has made such things as cookies for me to enjoy physically. So it becomes an occasion for me to experience love, that union with him that is love, and the fruit of that love is joy. Which is the means to an end that you were saying previously. Yes. So the, the ultimate end I want, in this, the gaudium is the ultimate happiness, that spiritual joy that comes from union with, with God, with a person, love, loving union with a person, not just a, a thing. The question of that quest being selfish, though, do you see the significance of the question? How it can seem like it's a selfish thing to structure your entire being around seeking joy. But authentic joy, because it is a fruit of that love that is union with God, 
authentic joy isn't selfish because authentic joy is seeking to be shared because it comes from love. So if you love God and want him all for yourself, it's not really God you love because that's not what God's about, yeah? So you can't love God and, and not want to share him. So that joy that is the spiritual quest fulfillment you're aiming for, that you're built for, is of its nature diffusive, shareable, wants to be shared. So it can't be selfish unless you misunderstand what it, what it is. And as we'll note in the next lecture, in sin we misunderstand that or mispursue it all the time. Okay, over the page. Unpacking this slightly differently. Page eight. I say, we need to better analyze the cause of spiritual joy. I say, in rational beings, anything that can be the, cause, the object of physical delectatio can also be the object of spiritual joy. That I can experience the cookie rationally, rejoicing intellectually in its recipe and texture, rejoicing spiritually, experiencing it as a gift from God. That spiritual joy is the fruit, the effect of charity. Here charity means that love of God, love that is the love of God within him. That's what I'm meaning by charity when the Catechism speaks of charity. The possession of authentic spiritual joy is thus a sign of union with God. Joy is a sign of fulfillment of the ex excellence of virtue. According to St. Thomas, joy is caused by love. Which means that spiritual joy can exist even alongside physical pain. Though it can also exist alongside physical pleasure. Do you want me to unpack that thought? apprehending a physical good, apprehending it spiritually, apprehending it rationally. Does that make sense that you're then engaging with it as a rational being? And it therefore causes in you fruits of a rational being. Whereas if you just engage with the cookie, as I say, as my dog does, you can engage with it that way, it will give you physical pleasure. But if you engage with it as a rational being, as a spiritual being, it causes more in you than just um, the physical trigger. It causes a spiritual fruit.
phrasing it slightly differently now, some of these things. Um, you all heard of the author Peter Kreeft? So he's got um, a book, Back to Virtue, nice little overview of a number of points related here. But he distinguishes the words happiness and blessedness. So happiness in the English language can be an unhelpful word. And so, you know, those very unfortunate scriptural translations we have that make all of the Beatitudes happy are, happy are, it just, happiness is such a light thing in the English language, it just makes, it's weird to say happy are those who mourn. It doesn't work. Whereas to say blessed is indicating something deeper going on there. Okay, anyway, Peter Kreef, he distinguishes this way. He said, happiness is something subjective, a feeling, a state of consciousness. It's something temporary, and it's something dependent on good fortune or chance. Whereas blessedness is an objective state, not a feeling. It's permanent, not transient. And it's not dependent on fortune. It depends on union with God. Yeah. So can you describe like what a, a blessing is then? Like when the priest blesses the people, what does that mean? Oh, that's a completely different use of the word blessing now. Um, so let me try and first answer the question and then come back to that thought. So um, a blessing as an example um, that doesn't involve a cookie. Um, The love I have for my friend, that that is something that doesn't just come and go in an instant, the way the cookie comes and goes in an instant. So the cookie is transient, temporary. The love of a friend, I can lose it, so it's not permanent, permanent, but it is a thing that just endures and can endure forever. So blessedness is a spiritual thing and it refers to all kinds of realities that that are spiritual and that therefore uh, don't just come and go or don't just automatically pass with a moment's contact because my love of my friend even after i've shared the cookie that love continues does that explain what a blessing is so a thing I'm given that lasts is a blessing in this distinction and that there would be many different blessings so why does it because we don't get it. Um, the blessedness of God, when we partake of him in completion in heaven, will be infinite. In this world, we only are engaging with him via intermediaries, so it's always only partial, and therefore always something we can lose. So in this world, we're engaging with real goods, but finite goods. In heaven, that will be something complete, infinite, total. Once you have, even once, um, 
seeing the beatific vision, being fulfilled in beholding his perfection. Once you have once beheld him and been perfected, it will be impossible to sin because you will just be fulfilled. There'll be nothing you could turn to that would fulfill the, the, the quest for happiness, the quest for fulfillment could, could look to instead. So even the devil, anyway, we'll, we'll come on to that in the next lecture. Is that an answer? What is a blessing? It's an individual partaking yeah. of this infinite thing. Because in this world, we only get these individual partakings. Because in this world, we don't have immediate contact with the infinite God. So we only have like a partial blessedness, you would say, on this earth. A real... Totally fulfilled. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's real, but it's only partial. And it's still losable. What about like with receiving the Eucharist? You have the total... Our capacity to receive it is partial. So yes, he is fully there, but my Our capacity... To realize it. Okay. Yeah. And that's an important <coughs> distinction. So there, there's lots of things when we're engaging with the Lord in the sacraments, in prayer, the limit is on our part, not on his. Page nine, um, I won't run through these, but this is just um, Bishop Robert Barron. He, if you've listened to his video series, Catholicism or read his book, he describes the moral life in terms of the cross and he indicates how um, the cross, what Jesus loved on the cross, fulfills that blessedness um, that we're made for. And he noticed, notes the paradox that the crucifix is the picture of a happy man. Uh, on the top right block it says, despising the four things that Jesus despised on the cross, one of them is pleasure. So we can take part in pleasure, but while despising it, like eating a cookie, that Certainly the Lord Jesus despised, disdained such things on the cross. But he also at other times feasted, uh, fasted. So part of what we'll also note when the Catechism describes a virtue is there's a time and a place, there's a measure, there's a mean. Um, for broken humanity in particular, fallen humanity, the only way I can have the path to that beatitude is through the cross. And therefore, to engage with Welsh, wealth, pleasure, power, honor, in a way that is despising them. So there's a way of enjoying the donut, but not finding my end in the donut. And in that sense, despising the donut.
because I'm recognizing the donuts as not being all it claims to be. So, work is a distinction, Adam. Yeah. And so often with the spiritual writers, what's meant by despising the world, hating the world, um, needs to be understood in, in that broader sense. Jesus both feasted and fasted, um, as we had in the gospel this morning. Okay, I'm going to take a step backwards now to the question of the image of God that is kind of before all this. So if we look back to page two in the lecture notes, and I'm going to go through this a little more quickly. So top of the page, I asked the question, who am I? Um, and then I quote John Paul II, man by himself is a mystery to himself. He wants to know what he is, and he doesn't know. He senses something. Well, there. It is Jesus Christ who fully reveals man to himself. So this is the teaching of Vatican II. It's the repeated theme of Pope John Paul II. Uh, Jake, can you read that quote there? Christ in... So the human person is made in the image and likeness of God, called to be a son of God, according to the Catechism, and to attain the perfection of charity that is holiness. And note the Catechism already fully answered the above question earlier in the Catechism, before the moral section. The Catechism reiterates the answer, what is man, in the context of the moral life. Because we can't understand human action, unless you understand what we are. You've all heard this phrase from John Paul II in particular, man reveal, Jesus Christ reveals man to himself. Uh, it's a beautiful bit of poetry. It's, you can get many sermons out of this. Um, that we seek to understand ourselves. He is the one who shows us what we are, who we are. Okay, unique in creation. See, and here I'm again quoting different bits from the Catechism here. The human person is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. And that's quoting the Second Vatican Council. So the plants, the birds, the deer out in the gardens, all of these things are good, are made by God, but they're all relative 
in a way that you with a spiritual soul are not. You are an end in yourself. Um, man is destined for eternal beatitude. Beatitude being sharing in the bliss which is God's very self. So man is, has a spiritual and immortal soul. He thus has powers of intellect, will, and freedom. You done that in philosophy? The human person is rational? Yes, okay. So this is connected with having an immortal soul, a rational soul. Um, that means man alone in the material creation is capable of being moral, uh, as the Catechism puts it. The intellect gives man reason. Reason enables us to recognize the voice of God and follow this law. That it's in living a moral life that we bear witness to the dignity of the person. How the moral life accords with the dignity of being in God's image and likeness. So you're the only bit of God's creation that can love him. You're the only bit of God's creation that can rationally engage with him because you are in his image and likeness. You can think, you can love because he thinks he loves and you're in his image. And here says men alone in the material creation, that's excluding Angelic and exactly, because the angels are also made in his image and likeness. They also are rational and they also love. Yeah. And they're made for their own sake, also. Yeah. Okay, page three of my notes. The image of God, unpacking this a bit more what's meant by it. So, so God is rational, God has intellect, will and freedom, and the human person is in his image. The next line is the key point to grasp out of all of this. The purpose of the image of God in us is to make us capable of turning to God. St. Thomas says, in virtue of having an intellectual nature, man has a natural aptitude for understanding and loving God. And this consists in the very nature of mind, which is common to all men. That man has in him a yearning that is innate, a yearning for God. And quoting Augustine, who is quoted in the Catechism, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Explaining this slightly differently, intrinsic, not extrinsic. So, so, so the image of God in us is not imprinted from the outside like a stamp. Yet there's a way of hearing this phrase, the image of God, and thinking, I'm in the image of God because it's kind of been stamped on me. That's not what's meant. It's intrinsic to what you are, that you are in his image. So, Rather, this image comes from the type of being that we are, possessing intellect and will. The image wasn't added to man after his creation. Rather, it exists as what he has been created as. 
and then make the contrast. A sacramental character is a seal imprinted on the soul, like a coin or like an image in wax. The image of God in you, in this sense, is not like that. Do you need me to explain that more? Does that make sense? So you can't lose the image of God. Even the damned in hell are still in the image and likeness of God. To be a rational being with a will. To have an intellect and will means you're in the image and likeness of God. And that goes with being spiritual, that those are all together, yeah? And our souls are mortal? And our souls are mortal, yeah. Okay, the last thing I'm going to do is just very briefly contrast this with Aristotle. Uh, when you do catechesis, especially with children or in a parish, be very clear the difference between what's meant when we use the word soul. So Aristotle used the word soul differently, different from the catechism. He used it merely to indicate life. So footnoting Dianima on the soul by Aristotle. The ensouled is distinguished from the unsouled by being alive. Living things are characterized by self-nourishment, growth, and decay. So Aristotle, I say, much like a modern scientist, based his observation, his analysis on observation and examples. And he said, the soul is known, not by direct intuition, but by way of vital activities, seeing, hearing, hoping. You see all that stuff happening and you realize there must be a soul here. There's life here. If there's life, he says, it's got a soul. His methodology looked at the behavior of things and deduced the principle that gave it form. He observed that some things live and have vegetative souls. Some things move themselves and have what he called sensitive souls. Humans alone exercise rational activity and thus have, he said, a rational soul. And a rational soul is immaterial, spiritual. It therefore survives death. So in short, the catechism means this last category when it uses the word soul. So if someone says, ah, but um, animals have souls, according to Aristotle, well, it's completely and utterly different use of the word soul. Uh, and even when St. Thomas will likewise use this language of vegetative and animal souls, it's confusing. It's just a very different use of the word soul. So when the catechism uses the word soul, it's meaning something spiritual, something that belongs to a being that is spiritual, rational, made in the image and likeness of God. So, yeah. So the souls of animals and plants are not... Yeah, they're not actually souls, they're just basically the animating piece of their being. Yeah, so Aristotle's saying there must be something in them that is animating, and he uses the word soul. But the 
intellectual, the Christian tradition in the centuries that has followed him has used this word soul exclusively to refer to rational, spiritual souls. So what do they refer to the souls of the animals and plants? Well, I just wouldn't refer to them as having souls. I'd refer to them as being living, but I, I feel it unnecessary to refer to them as having souls uh, and unhelpful. Um, this is where you have to be careful with children, you said? Yeah. yeah. Children, also when you're reading philosophy books or whatever else, just to, there are different things being referred to here, even if the same word soul is appearing there. And so if someone does refer to, say, well, Aristotle says animals have souls, it's a different type of soul, so different that you're confusing things by using the same word. So what, what I'm talking about in my catechism class, saying you're going to exist forever because you have a soul, um, that's not the same thing as an animal. And Aristotle would have said the animal, the sensitive soul, ceases to exist with its death, whereas the rational soul um, exists after death. But he did use the word soul for both, but he distinguished, for him is a big difference to be a sensitive soul or a vegetative soul or a rational soul. Okay, in summary here, what have we done today? We've been talking about the image of God and beatitude, how you are made in his image, you come from him in order that you might find your fulfillment back in him in whose image and likeness you're made. He is perfect beatitude and the yearning within you for happiness that you are yearning for even before you know you're yearning for it all those different things you are grasping for, thinking they're going to make you happy, you're grasping for them, actually seeking God. To close with a very dramatic expression of this, you all heard of G.K. Chesterton. He said, the young man knocking on the brothel door is seeking God, even though he doesn't know it. We'll unpack that more when we talk about freedom and sin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay.